everyone. I'm your host, Allie, and welcome to Behold Women at the Table. Behold is a community of women dedicated to beholding Jesus to transform the world around them. We want to pursue God's heart, create positive change, and commit to our God-given destinies with passion and joy. So continue listening for our newest episode. Well, Behold fam, we are back and continuing our study on the patriarchs. We learned a lot about Abraham and Isaac in the first two parts of this mini-series, and now we're continuing on with Jacob's life, and he has a lot. But before we jump in, I just want to let you guys know that the next podcast will be going back to interviews, and I have some friends I'm talking to that I'm really excited to interview and get on this space. I think the conversations are going to be incredibly important, so make sure you're keeping an eye open for that over at BeholdWomen.com. Also, subscribing to our email list is the best way to get information and updates about all things going on over at Behold. So anyway, back to Jacob. We first read of Jacob in his birth story in Genesis 25. It says in Genesis 25, 19, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay, so from this, we see things are already starting off a bit dicey. There's some battle between the twins going on during Rebecca's pregnancy and during the birth. And we also see that the two parents have their favorites. So the competition between the two is going to get heated. So something that's important to point out in this portion of scripture is the prophecy that the Lord gives to Rebecca about Jacob. God's choice of Jacob over Esau reflects that his favor is graciously given and not earned by works or deserved position. Because we know that in this time, if you were the firstborn son, it was natural that the blessing would be to you, that the younger would serve the older. But here we see the Lord graciously give that position and that status to Jacob. This is how it is with God. His favor is graciously given and extended to us. We don't earn his favor or get his favor by attaining a certain position. Just like for Jacob, God's favor is graciously given. We also see that Jacob's personality was significantly more like Abraham and Isaac in that they were shepherds. The scripture says that Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. So the picture that the writer is creating is that Jacob was a bit more thoughtful, intentional, and pastoral. 
whereas Esau is painted as more rash, is painted as more impulsive. So next up in Jacob's story, we have the infamous selling of the birthright. In Genesis 25, it continues on in verse 29 like this. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. There are so many good lessons in this story. And the first, just from a purely practical standpoint, is that hunger can make us dramatic. Don't make impulsive decisions if you're hungry or you're tired. I think we've all been there before. I remember once I was visiting London with a friend and we hadn't timed the afternoon great and we were just starving. And little did we know it was going to take an additional 40 minutes to get to the restaurant that we wanted to go to. Needless to say, those 40 minutes were stressful and silent because we had fought about getting to the restaurant. But the second we both had food in us, we apologized for making hangry remarks to each other and we were fine. It really is so important that we realize that sometimes there's just a physical component to things. We have to check in with ourselves. If we're hungry and if we're exhausted, we're not going to make the wisest decisions ever. The second lesson here is that Esau didn't value the divine gift of the promise and was willing to sell it for a quick meal, even though he had just returned from hunting with meat that just needed to be prepared. A lot of times, we get dramatic about the promises God has spoken over us when all we need to do is just prepare. Esau had what was necessary for a meal right in front of him, but instead he impulsively and rashly made a decision that would affect the trajectory of his entire life. The third lesson here is that Jacob was more focused on weighty matters with eternal consequences. Granted, he was deceptive, but it speaks to how God works through imperfect humans for his purposes. I don't want to make Jacob out to be a saint here. I mean, what he did was pretty rude, but it points to what Jacob was focused on. While Esau was focused on the temporal or what was right in front of him, Jacob was focused on the eternal. And this whole thing speaks to how God uses imperfect humans for his purposes, which is good news for all of us. We continue Jacob's story in Genesis 27 with the death of Isaac. So it says, When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. 
Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father, who felt him, and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game, and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. I think there's something incredibly important I want to point out here from the beginning. Because if we don't read this story with this in mind, it feels as though God is kind of blessing deception. We read in the beginning of Jacob's story that while he was in the womb, his mother received a promise about him, and that would be that the older would serve the younger, a.k.a. the blessing was meant for Jacob. So we actually see Isaac going against the word of the Lord in wanting to bless Esau. God wanted Jacob to receive the greater blessing, and he received it. In all of the deception, God's will was advanced. We see here in plain sight that no human act can thwart God's will. God did not abandon his gracious promise, but used even the misguided acts of Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob to further his plan for the salvation of the world. Why might you say is this important for us? It's important because God doesn't abandon his promises even though we're flawed. We don't have to strive for perfection because the promises that God has spoken over us don't rest on our good works or our striving to make things happen, which can include deception and manipulation. God's promises rest on his word. And something else I want to point out here is that Jacob strives to receive the promise. He had his eyes constantly focused on the family heritage of God's promises. And so I think it's important to ask ourselves where our focus is. Is my focus on the Lord and what he has spoken? Or is my focus on what I'm doing and my own plans? So after this whole thing, there is family drama. 
After Jacob receives the blessing, Esau comes back with the food for Isaac and learns that Jacob has deceived him. And Esau is mad because Isaac can't bless him now. Genesis 27 verse 41 through 45 says, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Not for nothing, but Esau's anger at Jacob really reminds me of the story of Cain and Abel. But I digress. So Jacob flees. Jacob will now spend 20 years away from the promised land with Rebekah's brother, Laban. But God's promise will ultimately bring him back. Jacob will ultimately end his life in Egypt, but he will still cling to the promise of the land of Canaan. And I think that's really beautiful. We see Jacob move around a lot, but I think he was able to do that because he was so confident in the promises of the Lord. So Jacob is sent to Laban and on the way back to Laban, he encounters the Lord in a dream. In Genesis 28 verses 10 through 22, it says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. The Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob in his journey came to know the God whose blessing he had so coveted because of his continued struggle with his brother. Now in a dream, he learned of God's grace and began to appreciate God's choice of him without the necessity of having his rivalry with his brother motivating his desire for blessing. What motivates your desire for a blessing? What motivates your desire to walk in the promises of God? 
I think these are really important questions I have to ask myself more often than I want to admit. I've been walking out a promise from the Lord that I've mentioned before for nearly eight years now. And one thing I'm finally learning is that God doesn't want the promise to be my sole focus. He wants himself to be my sole focus. If my motivation is to be able to put it on social media as a look at what I've got, then my motivation is not pure. If my motive is to say, I finally made it, see haters, then I really don't have the right perspective on the promises of the Lord. We see here that Jacob initially wanted the promise from a place of insecurity with his brother, who he was always in competition with. God wanted his desire for the promise to grow, but not at the expense of a relationship with God. God wanted Jacob to get to this point where he knew God would be faithful because that's who God is. He wanted Jacob to get to the point where his core motivation for the promise was to glorify God, not exalt himself above his brother. Jacob also shows us that God's people sometimes seek the right things, but in their sinful desires, try to obtain them in the wrong way. Jacob wasn't seeking God in it, but God was seeking him. And because of this heart transformation and revelation from God, we see a motivation shift in Jacob. Once God has Jacob alone, we see that Jacob is motivated not by God's demands, but by God's grace. Something else I want to point out here is that Jacob makes a threefold vow in response to God's three promises. Vows weren't made to coerce God into granting something, but to show how the person making the vow would demonstrate gratitude if God graciously provided a favor. Jacob's three pledges are conditioned on God keeping his promise to watch over Jacob and bring him back to the promised land. Basically, it was Jacob declaring his confidence in God. So, Now we get to yet another dramatic part of Jacob's story, and that's him basically getting the huge family that the Lord had promised him. In Genesis 29, he gets to Laban's land and starts working for him. He sees Laban's younger daughter, Rachel, and immediately says to himself that that's the woman he wants to marry. So he makes a deal with Laban. For seven years of service, Jacob would then wed Laban's younger daughter, Rachel even though Laban had an older daughter, Leah. But Laban is an ultimate deceiver. So at the end of the seven years, when the wedding night happens, Laban gives him Leah instead of Rachel. I'm legitimately still confused as to how Jacob screwed that one up on the wedding night, but hey, I digress. So when Jacob wakes up after his wedding night and realizes that it's Leah next to him and not Rachel, he kind of freaks out. Laban is petty and basically says, well, we don't do that here. I don't marry off the youngest before the oldest is married, which, dude, come on. You had seven years to communicate that to him. So they make another deal because Jacob is so in love with Rachel. He promises to work for another seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. And Laban agrees. Talk about dicey family dynamics. And Because Rachel was loved more than Leah, the Lord gave Leah four children right off the bat, whereas Rachel was unable to have kids. But Leah was able to provide in this way for Jacob. What we see in this part of Jacob's story is really poetic justice. The one who deceives his father is now deceived by his uncle. But we also see that through the wrong that was done to Jacob, 
God will bring forth a large and prosperous family, keeping with his promise. A lot of times we can feel as though we're victims to the circumstances of our lives, but most of the time I believe that it's through the pain that God brings forth his promise. We also see that the same sibling rivalry that Jacob experienced is experienced between his wives now. Rachel and Leah hated each other, and they both wanted what the other had. Leah wanted Jacob's love, and Rachel had that. Rachel wanted children of her own, and Leah had that. So we see the same sense of sibling rivalry play out between the sisters, which honestly, I get because talk about an awkward situation. And something else I want to point out is Jacob's passivity during the beginning years of the birth of his sons. He speaks only one sentence in Genesis 29 verses 31 through 35, names none of his children, and accepts his wife's determination of who he should have sex with and when. His passivity speaks to the fulfillment of God's promise even when Jacob isn't actively pursuing it. And I'm not sure about you, but that is such a relief for me. God's promise to fulfill something isn't contingent on my action. It's just contingent on the Lord. So we see that Jacob gets incredibly prosperous and him and Laban start to get into it a bit more and tensions are kind of rising. And because of this, Jacob wants to leave Laban's land and return home. They get into it and Laban tries to deceive Jacob again by tricking him. But Jacob realizes that in this, he had lost favor with Laban. And after that moment, the Lord then reveals to Jacob that it's time for him to return to his homeland. So Jacob gets his family together and flees without telling Laban that he's going. Laban realizes he's gone and starts to pursue him. But the Lord basically warns Laban in a dream to not harm Jacob. Laban then catches up to Jacob and family, and there's a bunch of tension. Laban accuses him of stealing stuff and deceiving him, but Jacob takes Laban's accusations and turns them back on him. They end up making a covenant, and the thing about a covenant with a patriarch is that it's basically an admission of the patriarch's superior rights and claims. So Laban heads back home, and Jacob and his family go on their way. Even though Jacob observed he had fallen out of favor with Laban, it was not his decision to leave. It was God's prompting and promise to be with him that precipitated his sudden departure. I think that's so important to point out because I think a lot of times situations and circumstances can get tense and awkward. And we can think that because of tension or because of awkwardness, it must mean that we are then called to change that scenario, that we are called to change that circumstance, whether it be a job or whatever it might be. We're called to just leave and go. But Jacob here re like represents that although he was feeling that loss of favor with Laban, he ultimately waited on the voice of the Lord. And we have to apply that to our own lives as well. That we don't go somewhere, we don't leave something based on our own feelings. We leave, we go because the Lord tells us to do it. So Jacob left when God called him to return to the promised land. And that is really indicative of Jacob's growth as a person. He wasn't just fleeing out of fear like he did before. He was going because the Lord had called him to. And I think that's also important because there's a difference in how we approach things, whether we approach it from fleeing out of fear or going because of faith. 
going because the Lord has spoken something over us and has called us to go. So we also see that God provided a safe passage for Jacob to make it back. God's promise to protect Jacob comes in the form of a dream to Laban. And something really cool I want to point out is that in Genesis 31, 42, we read of God as the fear of Isaac, and it's only found here in scripture. Isaac's God is the God who can implant fear into the hearts of those who seek to harm his people, which is exactly what's happening here when Laban catches up with them. So in Genesis 32, the narrative now turns its focus to Jacob's return to the promised land. We're going to read a big chunk of scripture, so bear with me. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Then Jacob gets a gift ready for Esau to appease him, thinking perhaps Esau will accept him. So all that he was gifting him went before him, and Jacob stayed in the camp that night. The scripture goes on to say, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob left Canaan to escape Esau's threats and was to return when Rebekah saw that the anger of Esau had subsided, but she never called Jacob. So Jacob was now returning at God's command. We see the tension in these chapters between Jacob's fear of Esau's wrath and God's promises and blessings on Jacob. 
Jacob knows what God has spoken, but now is really when his faithfulness will be demonstrated because the last thing Jacob knew was that Esau wanted to kill him. One thing that's really amazing here is that there's humility in Jacob's language now. Jacob's prayer is prompted by fear, but filled with faith that emphasizes God's promises and calls on God to honor his pledges. Secondly, Jacob let the fruits of his striving and work go before him, and he was left with the Lord. I think this is the place that the Lord wants to bring a lot of us to. No longer surrounded by the fruits of our own striving and work and left with him. It's at that place that we learn really what we rely on and really how we view the Lord. Third, we see this famous scene of Jacob wrestling with God in his manifestation as the angel of God. This scene is amazing. God knew who Jacob was and asked him his name because he wanted Jacob to admit who he was. He wanted Jacob to admit what he had done to Esau. This wasn't just an identification moment. This was a repentance moment for Jacob. And fourth, God gives him a new name. He had prevailed the wrestling match. This just proves again that God is steadfast in his promises and unwavering in his commitment to his people. What we see next in Genesis 33 is an account of the work of God because God's commitment to his promise is at stake. So Genesis 33, 1 says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. The brothers then continued to have a conversation of all that has happened in both of their lives since they last saw each other, focusing on what the Lord has blessed them with. Then they part with Esau going on his way and Jacob buying a piece of the promised land in Shechem. The first thing to point out here is that Jacob's reply focuses on his children and on God's blessing, not on Jacob's effort. The return to Jacob's home was neither easy or uncomplicated, but the journey came at God's prompting, so God made it possible. Jacob's focusing on what the Lord has done is something we all need to do. The focus isn't on us and what we have done, but rather on what the Lord has done and made a way for. Secondly, Jacob's pleading with Esau to take the gift as an acknowledgement of God's graciousness toward him is Jacob's oblique way of confessing that he stole Esau's blessing. His gift becomes his way of demonstrating his contrition. We see this moment of repentance and surrender between the two brothers, which is incredibly beautiful and indicative again of Jacob's growth. Third, in Esau, Jacob saw the face of God. We see acceptance based on forgiveness without any merit on Jacob's part. I think this is the ultimate sign of forgiveness, seeing the face of God in the other person. And so we close out Jacob's story in Genesis 35. In verse 1 it says, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. 
So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. First, we see a beautiful reminder of God's promises that will be fulfilled in the future. Secondly, I am God Almighty is the name God used for himself when he renamed Abram and gave him the promises, which I think is so amazing. And third, God's faithfulness to Jacob, even when he fell short of acting morally, just demonstrated to the patriarch that this God and no other could be relied upon for all good things. And this is great news for us. So in closing the story of Jacob, I want to point out that we don't see perfection from our patriarch here. We see that he has his issues. There was unhidden favoritism that was a struggle for our patriarchs. And as a result of this, Jacob caused more of a division between his sons. We know the story of Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery and how years later Jacob goes to Egypt to see his favored son again. While in Egypt, we see that in Jacob's passing, his final concern was that he would be buried in Canaan, in the promised land. This emphasizes Israel's future wasn't in Egypt, but in the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it ultimately served as a reminder of God's promises. There's so much that we can take away from the life of Joseph, but the three things I want you to take away from today are, first, is that God wanted Jacob to receive the greater blessing, and he received it. In all of the deception, God's will was advanced. We see here in plain sight that no human act can thwart God's will. God did not abandon his gracious promise, but used even the misguided acts of Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob to further his plan for salvation of the world. Secondly, Jacob in his journey came to know the God whose blessing he had so coveted because of his continued struggle with his brother. In a dream, he learned of God's grace and began to appreciate God's choice of him without the necessity of having his rivalry with his brother motivating his desire for blessing. We have to be willing to ask ourselves what motivates our desire for a blessing and what motivates our desire to walk in the promises of God. And lastly, and probably most importantly, God is steadfast in his promises and unwavering in his commitment to his people. And that's all I have for you. I hope you enjoyed this bit of teaching on the patriarchs on Behold Women at the Table. See you all next time. Thanks for joining us. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Behold Women. And if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate. We'll see you next time on Behold Women at the Table.